Publicly, Jahangir conformed to the rituals and practices of Sunni Islam. Privately, he was a free thinker, much less mystically inclined than his father. Sir Thomas Rowe, 1581-1644, the first English ambassador to the Mughal court in January 1615, even claims he was an outright atheist. That may or may not be the case. He most certainly was no dogmatic fundamentalist of any creed. He respected other religions' philosophical insights and enjoyed open intellectual debate. He was fond of the company of saints and hermits of all religions and came to view Sufi mysticism and Hindu Vedanta as almost identical. Above all, he was an inquisitive, level-headed rationalist and a skeptic with precious little patience for stories of miracles and superstitious old wives' tales. Dirk Collier, The Great Mughals and Their India Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our series on the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-3, Jahangir's Family. In April 1606, the Mughal Prince Khusro took up arms against his father, Emperor Jahangir. One could argue this rebellion was partially Akbar's fault as he openly considered appointing Khusro as his successor over his son, Jahangir. And to his credit, Jahangir took steps to limit his son's rebellious potential. He not only kept Khusro under his watchful eye in Agra, he also sent Khusro's closest supporters to the furthest regions of the empire. But despite all this, Khusro still found a way to rebel against his father. Let's take a look at Khusro's rebellion, why it failed, and its devastating consequences. Khusro's Rebellion As discussed in the previous episode, Akbar seemed to seriously consider appointing Khusro as his successor over his own son, Prince Salim, now known as Jahangir. This idea was definitely supported by two of Akbar's closest advisors, Rajaman Singh and his foster brother, Aziz Koka. But when Akbar died, the crown went to Khusro's father, Jahangir, and Khusro became very upset that he had come so close to the throne, yet still lost it. And with that, he began putting together a plan to overthrow his father. In April 1606, Khusro escaped from under his father and left Agra heading west towards Lahore. He used the excuse that he wanted to visit his grandfather's tomb, that is Akbar's tomb in Sikandra. But once he left Agra, Khusro immediately headed for Delhi instead. Mughal princes usually had their own personal military force. Now it was never as large as the imperial army, but it was still significant. Wherever the prince went, his army went along with him. So when Khusro left Agra, he already had a dedicated military of his own. What he needed now was to find allies and funding to counter the emperor's much larger army. To take care of the funding issue, Khusro's army attacked and captured a convoy transporting imperial money and made off with 100,000 rupees. 
on his way to Delhi, Khusro gathered several followers and supporters. One of these was a noble named Hussein Beg Badakhshi. Hussein Beg Badakhshi was able to contribute 3,000 horsemen to the rebellious cause and, using his connection, he was able to draft another 12,000 soldiers into the rebellion. Khusro also met the Sikh leader, Guru Arjan Singh. This was the fifth guru of the Sikh religion and he had compiled the Granth Sahib, which is the Sikh holy scripture. Guru Arjan Singh gave Khusro his blessings and contributed 5,000 rupees to the cause. Another noble that joined the rebellious cause was Abdurrahman, the Diwan of Punjab. He joined on with Khusro when Khusro passed through Panipat. For whatever reason, Khusro changed his mind about going to Delhi and decided to head for Lahore instead. However, when Prince Khusro arrived at Lahore, he was not able to enter the city. The garrison at Lahore remained loyal to the emperor and had closed and locked the gates to the city, preventing Khusro from entering. All Khusro could do now was lay siege to Lahore, but he was not able to break through. By this time, Jahangir had learned of the rebellion and was on his way to Lahore with the imperial army. When Khusro learned his father was on the warpath, he left a portion of his army behind at Lahore to keep the garrison busy, and then he led the rest of his forces to go meet his father in battle. The two sides fought at Barowal in modern Punjab, India, and Jahangir was victorious. Khusro, Hussein Beg, and Abdurrahman managed to escape the battlefield, but they had to leave a good portion of the money they'd stolen from the convoy behind. Jahangir immediately sent a group of soldiers to chase them down. On the run, and with the imperial soldiers on their tail, Hussein Beg Badakhshi suggested they head for Kabul because he had money, family, and additional troops along the way. Prince Khusro agreed with this idea, and they headed for Kabul, but when they got to the Shanab River in Pakistan, they couldn't find a way across. The thing is that Jahangir had a feeling they might head in that direction and he had sent word ahead to watch out for them. So when the three rebels arrived at the river, all of the boat drivers refused to take the three nobles across the river no matter how much the rebels threatened them nor how much they offered them bribes. Eventually, Khusro and his cohorts decided to steal a boat and make their way across the river on their own. However, these three nobles were not experienced with navigating the boat and navigating the river and got stuck on a sandbar in the middle of the river. And so they had to wait there like fools until Jahangir's soldiers caught up with them, rescued them, and then arrested them. Now here's a quote from Jahangir regarding this incident. In councils on state affairs and government, I usually act according to my own opinion and understanding. I consider two instances in which I took my own advice the most outstanding. First was when, contrary to the advice and approval of all my faithful servants, I went from Allahabad to see my exalted father and attained the happiness of serving him. In this lay the best path for my own spiritual and temporal good, for through that very act I became emperor. The second was the pursuit of Khusro, when I was not constrained by anything, 
not by selecting the most auspicious hour or anything else, and did not rest until I had him captured. Emperor Jahangir, the Jahangir Nama In the previous episode, we mentioned how cruel Jahangir, then known as Prince Salim, could be against his subjects in Allahabad. Well, now we're about to see that cruelty on display. Jahangir punished the rebels severely. First, the two nobles, Hussein Beg Badakhshi and Abdurrahman, were sewn into wet skins of a recently slaughtered buffalo and donkey. Hussein Beg died from suffocation because he was sewn into the buffalo skin and it dried out faster than the donkey skin. To add insult to injury, Jahangir also confiscated Hussein Beg Badakhshi's property and wealth. Abdurrahman survived and was eventually pardoned. The other rebels, who were not nobles, were brutally executed. They were impaled alive while Khusro was forced to ride down a road with their dying bodies on either side. As for the Sikh guru Arjan Singh, he was arrested for supporting the rebellion. His property was confiscated and then he was fined 200,000 rupees. But the guru refused to pay the fine and he was then tortured for five days and nights. The torture included chaining a hot metal plate to him while burning sand was poured over his body. And then he was executed. Guru Arjan Singh became the first Sikh martyr and this event created permanent animosity between the Sikhs and the Mughals. The death of the Guru created unrest in the Sikh community and the Mughals were forced to maintain a military presence in the Punjab. All of this led to the development of the Sikhs' militaristic traditions. And when the British arrived, this Sikh-Mughal conflict became a Sikh-Muslim conflict. When India was partitioned in 1947, thousands of Muslims and Sikhs attacked and killed each other. As for Prince Khusro, he was put in chains for about a year and dragged along behind Jahangir's camp as a travel from city to city. Eventually, the prince was released. However, not long after he was free, Prince Khusro started plotting to assassinate his father. The plan was to kill his father while he was hunting, but the plot was uncovered by Jahangir's third son, Prince Khuram, before it could be put into action. The primary plotters who had assisted Khusro in this plan were all executed. As for Prince Khusro, he was blinded by having his eyes sewn shut and would spend the rest of his life in chains. Years later, doctors were able to remove some of the stitches across his eyelids and he regained some of his sight. With Prince Khusro out of the way, Jahangir's third son, Prince Khuram, became the heir apparent. Prince Khuram was given the Hisar for Rose in 1608, which is located in the modern state of Haryana in India. Hisar for Rose was the traditional estate for the Mughal era parent. Prince Khuram was also allowed to pitch a red tent while on campaign, which was another sign of being the era parent. Noor Jahan In the previous episode, we briefly mentioned a man named Gayas Beg. Well, let's talk about him a little bit more. 
Originally from Persia, Gayaz Beg had once been the wazir of the governor of Khorasan. But after his father died, the family fell into debt and misfortune, and Gayaz Beg decided to try his luck in India. He left Persia with his pregnant wife, his daughter, and his two sons. One of his sons was named Abdul Hassan, but later changed it to Asif Khan. We'll talk more about Asif Khan later in this episode, so just stay tuned for that. The merchant caravan that the family was traveling with was attacked by bandits and Gayaz Beg lost almost everything he owned. The family traveled on to Kandahar where his wife gave birth to their second daughter in 1577. They named her Mehrunisa, which means son of women. That's S-U-N, son of women. Soon after his daughter's birth, Gayaz Beg's fortunes began to improve. He started working as a local treasurer in the Mughal administration during Akbar's reign and worked his way up to higher positions. Gayaz Beg was so competent with his duties, he earned the title Pillar of the State. In 1594, Gayaz Beg's daughter, Mehrunisa, married a Persian officer in the Mughal army named Sher Afghan. This officer had worked with Akbar during his conflict with Jahangir back when he was known as Prince Salim. Now that Jahangir was emperor, he had been advised not to keep Sher Afghan in Bengal because it was too easy for him to start trouble over there. But Jahangir ignored these warnings and gave Sher Afghan a Jagir in Bengal. In 1607, some suspicions arose out of Sher Afghan's handling of government funds. Jahangir ordered the governor of Bengal and his foster brother Kutbuddin Koka to arrest Sher Afghan and bring him to court. Kutbuddin's mother had nursed Jahangir as a baby, and he was almost as close to her as he was to his own mother. A scuffle broke out between Sher Afghan and Kutbuddin Koka when he arrived in court, and Sher Afghan attacked and severely wounded Kutbuddin Koka. Kutbuddin Koka's men pounced on Sher Afghan and killed him, but Kutbuddin still died a few hours later. Jahangir was deeply saddened when he learned of Kutbuddin Koka's death. Based on what happened next, there are stories and rumors that Sher Afghan was deliberately sent to Bengal by Jahangir in the hopes that he'd be killed. But as we'll see, that is most likely not true. Sher Afghan's wife, Mehrunisa, returned to Agra with her daughter as she was now a widow at the age of 30. She became a lady-in-waiting for Salima Sultana Begum, one of Akbar's widows. In 1611, Mehrunisa set up shop at the Mina Bazaar. Mina Bazaar means fancy market, and it was first established by Humayun. It was similar to a fair where the noble women could set up stalls and sell crafts, jewelry, and cloth. The purpose of this bazaar was to allow young men and women of noble birth to meet, flirt, and hopefully get married. The only men allowed to attend the bazaar were the emperor and certain nobles. According to legend, Jahangir was perusing Mina Bazaar carrying two of his favorite pigeons. He handed the birds to Mehrunisa so he could look at some goods being sold at the bazaar. When he came back, Mehrunisa was only carrying one of the pigeons. Jahangir asked about the other one and she said it flew away. The emperor then asked, well, how did that happen? And she replied, like this. And she released the other one, and that also flew away. 
Jahangir fell in love with Mehrunisa and they got married a few months later. He gave her the title Nur Mahal, which means Light of the Palace. This title was later upgraded to Nur Jahan, which means Light of the World, and that is a title that she is still known by even today. Nur Jahan was a remarkable woman. In addition to reportedly being very beautiful, she was also an excellent poet. She was a fashion and makeup designer. She even invented her own perfume scent called Rose Attar, and even today, it is still made using her formula. She was also an excellent hunter and a good marksman. But most importantly, she was a skilled politician. Before long, Jahangir came to completely trust her in affairs of state and put her in charge of several imperial functions. And this was a good thing because Jahangir was often either drunk or high on opium. Nur Jahan would become the most powerful person in the empire after her husband. And through her influence, her family members attained high positions throughout the empire. Her father became one of the highest-ranking officials in the empire, similar to a prime minister or vizier. And that's how he earned the title Daula, or Pillar of the State. Her brother, Asaf Khan, was given a high position in court, and just like his father, he would also later become vizier. Asaf Khan's daughter, Arjuman Bano, married Prince Kurum in 1612, and she was eventually given the title Mumtaz Mahal, or Prominent One of the Court. This marriage would lead to one of the most iconic buildings in the world. All of this allowed Nur Jahan and her family to practically control the Mughal Empire. But this also planted the seeds of animosity both inside and outside Nur Jahan's family. Rajputs and Afghans The Rajput Kingdom of Mawar was the last remaining free Rajput state and it was still an issue for the Mughals. We discussed Akbar's conquest of most of the Rajput kingdoms in Season 8. During this period, Akbar invaded Mawar in 1567 and captured the Rajput fort of Chitor. However, their leader, Uday Singh, continued to resist the Mughals. Uday Singh's grandson, Amar Singh, waged a guerrilla war against the Mughals when he became the Rajput king. Akbar had tried to conquer Mawar several times, but always somehow came up short. Now, of course, this was partially due to Jahangir, back when he was known as Prince Salim, refusing to attack Mawar at his father's command. And this is what started his semi-rebellion that we discussed in the previous episode. So now that he was emperor, Jahangir set out to subdue Mawar once and for all. He had to briefly postpone this campaign to deal with his son Khusro's rebellion, but he went right back to war against the Rajputs of Mawar in 1608. This fighting dragged on for six years until Jahangir finally sent his other son, Prince Khurram, to conquer Mawar in 1614. Prince Khurram was ultimately successful and forced Amar Singh to submit to Mughal authority. Prince Khurram was aware of the legendary Rajput pride and so he negotiated a very favorable deal with the Rajput king. Amar Singh would remain in charge at Mawar, but he would acknowledge Jahangir as his emperor. Amar Singh sent his son, Karan Singh, 
to pledge allegiance to Jahangir, and Karan Singh would remain at court to represent his father before the emperor. He might also have been used as a hostage to make sure that Amar Singh stayed in line. Nonetheless, Jahangir treated him well, gave him gifts, and gave him a rank of 5,000 horsemen. With the conquest of Mawar, all of the Rajput kingdoms had either submitted to, allied with, or been destroyed by the Mughals. The Mughal-Rajput alliance would last for many years, and it became so strong that Jahangir eventually returned the lands around Chittor to the Rajputs, though he would not return the fortress itself. Another thorn in the Mughal side were the Afghans in Bengal. After Akbar died in 1605, the Afghans of Bengal began plotting a revolt against Emperor Jahangir. The Afghan leader in Bengal was a man named Usman, who had previously been defeated by the Mughals and had also pledged allegiance to Akbar. But in 1612, Usman began rallying the Afghans and local landlords to throw off Mughal rule with the intention to re-establish an independent Afghan state in Bengal. The Mughal governor of Bengal, Islam Khan, eventually defeated the rebels and Usman was killed in battle. Just like the Rajputs, Jahangir went easy on the Afghans. Instead of punishing them, he incorporated them into his own military. This ended the Mughal-Afghan rivalry that had existed for nearly a hundred years ever since Babur had defeated Ibrahim Lodi. And this peace would last until the attacks of Nadir Shah in 1721. Jahangir and the British The first official meeting between the East India Company and the Mughal Empire took place during the reign of Emperor Jahangir. In 1608, William Hawkins of the East India Company arrived at the port of Surat, which is in Gujarat, on the western coast of India, about 140 miles north of Mumbai. From there, Hawkins traveled on to Agra, where he met with Emperor Jahangir in April 1609. William Hawkins impressed Jahangir by speaking to him in Turkish, and the two men were able to communicate and talk about Western Europe and many other things without an interpreter. Hawkins asked for permission to establish an English factory in Surat, and this request was granted by Emperor Jahangir. William Hawkins would remain in India for nearly three years, eventually marrying the daughter of an Armenian Christian. At some point, however, William Hawkins fell into disfavor with Jahangir and was sent back home. William Hawkins left Agra in November 1611 and returned to England without having accomplished much. But the English weren't done yet. In 1615, Sir Thomas Rowe was sent as an English ambassador to the Mughal court. Now this was on a different level because Thomas Rowe carried official documents from King James I. Yes, that King James of biblical fame. You see, the English were determined to grab a share of the Indian trade which was currently dominated by the Portuguese and the Dutch. But the Mughals didn't really have any interest in trading with the English because the English didn't have anything that the Mughals wanted. Now listen to this quote to get an idea about the relationship between Jahangir and William Rowe. Jahangir was, after all, an enormously sensitive, curious, and intelligent man. 
observant of the world around him and a keen collector of its curiosities, from Venetian swords and globes to Safavid silks, jade pebbles, and even narwhal teeth. A proud inheritor of the Indo-Mughal tradition of aesthetics and knowledge, as well as maintaining the empire and commissioning great works of art. He took an active interest in goat and cheetah breeding, medicine and astronomy, and had an insatiable appetite for animal husbandry like some enlightenment landowner of a later generation. This, not the mechanics of trade, was what interested him, and there followed several months of conversations with the two men talking at cross-purposes. Roe would try to steer the talk towards commerce and diplomacy and the ferments, imperial orders, he wanted confirming his favor for an English factory at Surat and to establish a firm and secure trade and residence for my countrymen in constant love and peace. But Jahangir would assure him such workaday matters could wait, and instead counter with questions about the distant, foggy island Ro came from, the strange things that went on there, and the art which it produced. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. Nonetheless, the Mughals were interested in the English Navy. From the Mughal perspective, the English were a naval power. Since the Mughals did not have a strong navy, they had to rely on European navies for safe sea transit of people and goods. Especially important was Hajj pilgrims. Their safety at sea was a major concern for the Mughal Empire. So with this, the first British factory was established in 1616 at Masuli Patnam on the eastern coast of India along the Bay of Bengal in what is now the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh. The Deccan again. Jahangir wanted to complete the job his father had started in the Deccan. We discussed the early Mughal wars in the Deccan extensively in the Malik Ambar series as well as the previous episodes of this series. So we will only briefly mention it here and I encourage you to go back to those earlier episodes to fill in the details. When Akbar died in 1605, the Mughals controlled northern Maharashtra and parts of the Ahmednagar Sultanate. In 1608, Emperor Jahangir sent Khani Khan and Abdurrahim with an army to subdue the rest of Ahmednagar and the rest of the Deccan. Abdurrahim mostly used bribery and diplomacy to weaken Malik Ambar's alliances, and when Prince Khordun became governor of the Deccan, he continued this practice. Malik Ambar was temporarily humbled and forced to negotiate a peace treaty with Prince Khordam in 1617 and he returned some of the territory that he had captured to the Mughals. Two years later, however, in 1619, Malik Ambar allied with local Hindu Marathas and nearly drove the Mughals out of the Deccan. Kani Khanan Abdurrahim sent an urgent message to Prince Khordam, who was away on campaign way to the north near Kashmir. Prince Khurram rushed back to the Deccan in 1621 and began a vigorous campaign against Malik Ambar. He forced Malik Ambar to return the territory that he had captured and pay tribute to the Mughals. But Prince Khurram really didn't want to focus on the Deccan because he was more concerned about court politics back home in Agra. Family Friction Things were getting very tense in the royal court. 
Jahangir fell ill in 1620 and was seemingly close to death. He would remain in poor health throughout the rest of his life, mostly due to his alcohol and drug addictions. In this weakened state, Jahangir delegated even more authority to his wife Nur Jahan, who grew even more powerful during this period. But Jahangir didn't care because all he wanted to do was drink and get high. But now, Nur Jahan was starting to feel threatened by Prince Khudam because he had proven himself to be an excellent military commander. And his military successes in the Deccan and in Mawar had made him popular in the Mughal Empire. Nur Jahan knew that Prince Khudam was not somebody that she could easily manipulate. So to hedge her bets, she arranged a marriage between her daughter, Ladli Begum, and Prince Shahriyar. Ladli Begum was the daughter of Sher Afghan, Nur Jahan's first husband. Shahriyar was the son of another one of Jahangir's wives, so even though they were within the same family, they had different mothers and fathers. During this period, friction also developed between Nur Jahan and her brother, Asaf Khan. As we mentioned earlier, Asaf Khan was the father of Arjuman Bano, who was the wife of Prince Khurram. Both siblings wanted their respective sons-in-law to succeed Jahangir as emperor. The friction between brother and sister increased as Jahangir continued to grow more ill. And it continued to worsen when their father, Gayas Beg, died in 1621. Now, this situation is going to get very messy and very complicated over the next several years, but that's a story for another day. In the next episode, we'll discuss these shifting allegiances between Nur Jahan, Asaf Khan, and Prince Khurram as the Mughals continue to languish in the Deccan. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Saroj for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Afghanistan Season 1, 
presented by Islamic History Exclusive. This season, we are discussing the Soviet-Afghan War, and this is episode 1-4. I want to begin by reading an excerpt from a newspaper article entitled, Afghan Invasion Looks Like Success for Soviets. It was printed on January 1st, 1980 in the Baltimore Sun, just a few days after the Soviet invasion. Quote, Militarily, the airlift of between 25,000 and 30,000 combat-ready Soviet troops into Afghanistan seems to have gone off quite well. There is some fighting, but no report of excessive casualties among Soviet troops. Strategically, the rewards were high. Last week's coup plunges Soviet power deeper into a turbulent part of the world. Eastern Afghanistan overlooks the mountain passes to the Asian subcontinent. Southern Afghanistan lies between disintegrating Iran and shaky Pakistan. Soviet forces are a step closer to the Persian Gulf and the Western world's oil supplies. Politically, the results were good too. The Soviets have rid themselves of their loveless three-month marriage of convenience to the not-always-cooperative Hafizullah Amin and replaced him with the more pliant Babra Karmel as Afghan leader. Perhaps most important to the Soviet Union, it has again reasserted its role as policeman of the socialist nations near its borders, using military force when its strategic interests were thought to be at stake. Against this backdrop, the damage inflicted on the Soviet image around the world may be a price worth paying. If relations with the United States have suffered, they merely continue a decline that began last summer with the trials of political dissidents. Now the Soviet presence is massive and unmistakable. Washington estimated there are between 25,000 and 30,000 Soviet troops in Afghanistan. They, along with remnants of the Afghan army, oppose poorly equipped guerrilla groups that so far have refused to cooperate with each other. But if the Soviet intervention unites these factions, and if Muslim regimes in the Middle East decide to finance and arm them, the Russians could face a nasty war of attrition, perhaps not as costly as the American experience in Vietnam, but serious enough to keep the Kremlin from making policy gains in the Middle East. Unquote. All right, so with that out of the way, let's briefly discuss the Salang Pass. The Salang Pass is a mountain pass in Afghanistan located in the Hindu Kush mountain range. It connects Kabul, which is the capital of Afghanistan, with the northern parts of the country, including Mazari Sharif, Kunduz, and Balkh. The Salang Pass has an elevation of 3,878 meters, which is roughly 12,720 feet for my American friends. And that makes it one of the highest mountain passes in Afghanistan and one of the highest mountain passes in the world. The Salang Pass is known for its steep inclines, sharp curves, narrow tunnels, all of which make it very difficult to travel. Even more difficult are the avalanches, which are frequent in this area, which often lead to the deaths of people traveling along the Salang Pass. Now, part of the Salang Pass includes the Salang Tunnel, which was built by the Soviet Union in 1964. 
In the last episode, we mentioned how the Soviet Union had invested millions of dollars into Afghanistan's infrastructure. Well, this Salang Tunnel along the Salang Pass was one of those investments. The Salang Tunnel is a two-lane tunnel which today has very poor ventilation and very poor lighting. But its importance in our story is that the tunnel was a prime spot. The approaches to the tunnel, the entrance and the exit of the tunnel were prime spots for Mujahideen ambush attacks. It's very easy to imagine. The only way to get resources and material into Afghanistan from the Soviet Union was through the Salang Pass. Going along the Salang Pass means they have to go through the Salang Tunnel. It's very easy for the Mujahideen to track and notice a convoy of Russian trucks and tanks or whatever going through the tunnel or actually entering the tunnel and then very easy to time how long it's going to take for that convoy to come out on the other end of that tunnel. This allowed the Mujahideen to hit the Soviet convoys relentlessly. 